Last year, uh, we were going through this section of Jesus' teaching. In some ways, it's, it's kind of his final words. It's hard to have final words when you come back from the dead. But before he died, these were like his, his final words. Uh, after they've shared communion together and before Jesus arrested in the garden, and in the middle of that, God was really getting a hold of my heart. I'd always uh, gravitated towards the Sermon on the Mount, but I had shared with Pat, it's clear that there's like kind of these bookend teachings. There's the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of Jesus' uh, ministry, or at least at the front end of it. And then there's these teachings at the end, and they kind of wrapped around. And just going back and rereading, I thought, man, we just spent our time in those teachings. We should spend the next year in the Sermon on the Mount. And this year, we will be focusing our attention on what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And in that, if we follow Jesus, then we need to, and we walked through this this year already, if we're going to follow him, then we need to be with him. It's hard to be with somebody that you're not with. Logically, we're on the same page. Okay, it's hard to follow Jesus if he's somewhere where you're not, or he's leading somewhere you're not willing to go, or if he's moving forward and you're staying back, or if he's being still but you can't stop but to move forward, we've got to be with him. But not only that, but as we're with him, we become like him. He shapes who we are. Uh, he molds who we're becoming. He uh, moves into the way we think and the way we behave, the way our attitudes function. We take every thought captive, as Paul says. Uh, we make sure that our attitudes are like that of Christ. you get what I'm saying? We, 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 we mold as much as we can to the image of, of uh, as Paul says, our big brother Jesus, Right? And then as we become like him, we also begin to do the things he does. Some of us jump the gun. We don't want to be with him. We don't like to sit still long enough and don't know how to do that. Or we don't want to become like him because we kind of like some of the freedoms we have. But we want to do the things he does. But in this Jesus following life, it has to start with him. And it has to mold its way into who we are. And that has to become uh, what we do out of that. Uh, we will be spending most of this year with Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I was reading through again this week a, a story of an author uh, who, who I've enjoyed, uh, and he was sharing that uh, he's a Chicago land area pastor, and he was sharing that he uh, was at a different church and he was teaching uh, a class on the Sermon on the Mount. And they took, I don't remember how many weeks to go through the entire sermon, but the first week started, he said there were 60, 70 people in the class. And the first week started by he had everyone stand while they read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, it really only takes 15 or 20 minutes, and we won't do that today. But as he read through it, uh, everyone's hearing these words of the sermon. And at the end of it, he asks a really simple question. So do you think he was serious? If you raise, raise your hand if you think Jesus was serious, and what he found was, I'm glad this room responded differently, he said nobody responded that way. And their ideas were, well, if we lived that way, we would be pushovers. People would just bull over our lives, and they would take whatever they want from us, and uh, we, we, you know, we've got to have some kind of sense of security if we lived that way. There was people for political reasons that said, well, that sounds way too much like the fill-in-the-blank side, and there's no way that that's what we're supposed to do. Do you get it? They were looking at the words of Jesus saying, there's no way that fits into my political ideology. Some people were saying it doesn't fit into my comfort zone. And at the end of it, it's that Jesus couldn't have expected us to live that way. And what I want to encourage us is, if you're around here long enough this year, you'll find out we do think Jesus was serious. That this kingdom way of living is how we are supposed to live in the kingdom that we've been brought into by the blood of the king. 
And so as we live in this kingdom, I want us to be reminded that in the uh, story that we jump into in this moment in history, Jesus is a Jewish man embedded in a Jewish culture, surrounded by Jewish people who are all under the oppressive occupation of the giant, overwhelming Roman Empire. For centuries, God's people had been waiting for the Messiah who would bring a great light into a land of darkness. They were waiting for this person who would bless all nations, who would establish an eternal kingdom through the line of David, who would be the one who set the captives free, who would bring an end to sin, that his blood would be spilled to repair the broken separation between people and God, and that he would conquer death. I'm just reading you what the prophets told them. That this Messiah would come and change everything, that would free everyone, that would unlock things that were locked up, that would set free things that were held captive. The Messiah God sends comes as Jesus of Nazareth. And Matthew tells us that Jesus comes from extremely humble beginnings, if you remember the Christmas story, uh, that as he grows, we find that he settles his home in a little fishing community of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Picture it today, right? Jesus shows up. We've been long awaiting the Messiah. Uh, He returns uh, to the town of Lincoln, Illinois. Wow. Apparently he's got a bad publicist, right? Uh, his his uh, team that's helping him with his, uh, how he's seen publicly, isn't. that's not going very well. Wrong place, right? Realtors, right location, right location. He doesn't have the right location. This is the bad location. But he doesn't set himself up in the cities where there's power and money and influence. He sets himself up with people who had none of that. And it's to people like them, and maybe for some of you in the room, people like us, that Jesus shows up. And it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's close. Uh, this word kingdom in the Greek is the Greek word uh, basilia. It's where, uh, if, if you are in the Roman Empire... Uh, in Greek, it's the Romania Basilla. You are in the, the, the Roman kingdom. It's the Roman empire. In a lot of ways, what Jesus does when he preaches the incoming empire of heaven is that this is going to be different than where you live. What you see going on around you doesn't where you belong. There's a new place to belong. The, the emperor that's over all of this is not the emperor that's over all creation. And that empire, that kingdom, is at hand. Don't forget, Jesus was arrested and executed because his spiritual authority threatened the religious leaders. Don't forget, he didn't die of old age. Not only that, his proclaiming of this good news of an empire, let's not lose sight that when the Roman Empire, we've shared this before, when they would go into a city before the armies came, they would send a messenger or an angelion, how we get our word angel, they would send somebody out ahead to proclaim the good news. This is their language. They would proclaim the good news that the Roman Empire is coming if you would trust in the emperor and the empire that you might be saved. And Jesus comes in and says, well, we got a different story, and we got a different empire. 
Uh, the one that they're giving you isn't going to work, but, but Christ is coming with one that's going to fulfill all prophecies, that will be what God wanted, that will restore and reset, and will bring us back into him. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom and a new empire, and like the original hearers of the sermon, too often we can be too embedded in our own empire, our own kingdom, the own place where we live, our own culture, and cling to the citizenship of the kingdom of God. So we need to be taught this way of living and this way of following, because too often, just like the rest of history, we can be too much like the world around us, but not the world of the kingdom that God's brought to us. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 This is the text that right uh, precedes the Sermon on the Mount. We get a little bit of a, a picture of who Jesus is and what he's doing. It says, Jesus was going about in all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This wasn't new information for a Roman occupied territory. They'd had people proclaim the good news of a kingdom. Jesus is coming to proclaim the good news of a different kingdom. It says, and he was healing every disease and every sickness among the people, and the news about him spread throughout Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, severe pain, demon-possessed, people with epilepsy, people who were paralyzed, and he healed them. The Roman Empire wasn't doing any of that. So it's not shocking in verse 25 when we're told large crowds followed him. We would too. From Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, what we get this image is people are coming from everywhere to this little fishing town to be around this rabbi, this teacher, this one who proclaims the good news of the kingdom that it's now at hand. There seems to be something different about him. He wasn't in the impressive, important, powerful cities. He's out in the sticks, uh, but people are coming to him from everywhere just to be with him. The people he lives around aren't in high positions. They don't have significant wealth to impress anyone or influence anything. They don't have power to get their own way. And it seems like they are forgotten, weak, poor, distraught, and hopeless to change their circumstances or to do anything about subverting the empire that occupied them. So when Jesus begins to preach, he's preaching that a backwards understanding reality and a way of living in God's kingdom, what does it mean to be God's people? And Jesus enters into this sermon. Jesus opens his sermon, if you are in Matthew chapter five, he opens his sermon with what we've called the Beatitudes, which is a weird word that we use for nothing, except for this section. But it just means the blessings, or more specifically, the supreme blessedness. If you want to know what the highest level of blessedness looks like, here's these. The hard part's when you read them, it doesn't look like blessed people in our context. When we think of the blessed life, We think of a state of being given good things by God, right? Oh, so-and-so got a new truck. Man, they they were blessed. That's a blessing, right? So-and-so was able to buy a new house. That's a blessing. Oh, did you hear so-and-so? They just had their baby. That's a blessing, right? And it's this idea that because they've been given something, now that they've received a blessing. The difference here is nine times Jesus describes those who are experiencing makairos. Go ahead and say it because I know you're itching for it. Makairos. 
or Macario, sorry, that's my bad, I led you astray. Macario, say it again just to make me feel better. Thank you, you're kind, right? Macarios are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus isn't showing them that it's, is showing them that it's not about being given good things, it's about living in a good situation. The idea being, uh, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, not blessed are the poor in spirit. So I want you to think through this with me. Uh, the, uh, a good way to grab onto this word is we find it refrained back in Psalm chapter one, verse one. Listen to how the psalmist describes the blessed life. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and the law he meditates day and night. You get it? Uh, man, there's, there's goodness in this person's life when they're not standing in the way of evil that's happening around them, but they're separate, and it's in the word of God. That's, that's where they delight. That's where their joy comes from. It says, this person, this kind of blessed person will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season and its leaves does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. And we get this image that the blessed life that Jesus is talking about has more to do with who we are than what's going on around us. That it has something to do with our situation, not what we've been given that there's a posture of our heart, there's a way that we live, there is the kind of life that we have that allows us to live in the good life. Uh, blessed in English feels like we're getting something, right? But this word takes us to a different understanding. Jonathan Pennington says this, all such flourishing statements or blessed statements cast a vision for life that includes an implicit invitation. Beatitudes are description and commendations of the good life. As prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their full, true flourishing now and in the age to come. That when we become these people, we experience the goodness, the fullness, the blessedness, the flourishing of God in our life. Scott McKnight refers to the Beatitudes as a radical re-envisioning of the people of God. That we're not like all of them, instead we're more like him. Jesus helps his disciples and, and those gathered to hear him reimagine the people of God as the ones who live, whose lives look like this beatitudinal way of being. And like Jesus himself, this is the good life in the Jesus kingdom of the heavens. So would you stand with me as I read through these blessings? or these uh, uh, recallings of the blessed life. Verse five, or sorry, chapter five, verse one says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. You get the image? Jesus takes off, they're following him, literally following him, so if he's there, they're going there. He sits down, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is so opposite of what gets us ahead in the world around us. This kind of living doesn't look like it solves our problems. This kind of living doesn't look like it shifts culture. This kind of living doesn't look like it redeems anything back to you. Oftentimes we feel like we've got to gear up for a fight, and here it looks like we have to lay everything down. Uh, so Lord, would you, uh, would you assist us uh, as we work through these? Would you walk with us? Uh, Father, would your spirit mess with us? Uh, so that we would become the kinds of people who experience this blessed, flourishing, good life of the kingdom of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can have a seat. And as you sit, here is something I would like for you to do, if you're so willing. If you would get, uh, whether it's a tech device or a piece of paper and pen or pencil, I actually don't really care if it's a marker. Do whatever you want, right? Uh, but write down the top five things that you're worried about right now. And I'm going to keep talking because you won't want it if this goes longer. So, But I want you to write down the top five things that you are worried about right now. Because as you write these down, I'd like to lead us in thinking through this. Our worries expose our fears and often reveal our faith. What we're worried about shows some stuff about us. If everything you're worried about is about everything you watched on the news last night, it shows something about who you really trust and in whom you really have hope. If you're worried about finances, it says something about how we believe provision is taken care of. You get what I'm saying? So as you think through, write down the top five things you're worried about. Jesus in Matthew chapter five, the first blessedness or the first blessing that we read is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the word here is poor or impoverished. Has anybody ever looked or felt in, when you've been in this spot, you look around at your bank account, you look around at what you don't have and say, this is it. This is what everything's built up to. Super thankful for how little I have. Thank you, God, that, you, that there's not the provision I've been asking for. A lot of times, in poverty, or when we're poor, what we find is, is the worries are skyrocketing. Or when we have a sense that we're impoverished or poor. I've been reminded over and over to be thankful in the times where I'm worried of what I don't have, that what I have right now is what I prayed for about 10 years ago. Right? Because the idea of wealth is a moving target. Once we get here, then we'll have enough. Well, then you get there and it's like, no, no, no. Now when I get there, I'll have enough. Get what I'm saying? Enough never seems to be enough. Mark Skindretti says this, poverty is when a person doesn't have enough or when they feel like they aren't enough. Don't forget, Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew, it's the poor in spirit. So it's not just that we don't have enough, though that's part of it, but it's that we also believe that maybe we aren't enough. Something is lacking materially or emotionally. Look at the list of your worries. Are your worries rooted in believing that you don't have enough or that you aren't enough? that you'll never find love and maybe you'll die alone, that you don't have enough money, that there's 
you're not strong enough to overcome an addiction, that you are not attentive enough to see what God wants for you, or you're not smart enough, or you're not young enough, or you're not old enough. You get what I'm saying? Enough always shifts. More is rarely ever found, and when it is, it's not enough. Being poor in spirit, that in your spirit you have nothing, which is exactly where we need to be in our lives in order for Christ to be everything. King David says it this way in Psalm 23, verse 1, which most of us know well, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need. Or think of it this way in the NIRV, it says the Lord is my shepherd, he gives me everything I need. So long as I'm not the shepherd over my life or someone else, if they are, then I've got needs. But if the Lord's my shepherd, I don't have to have anything because he has everything. I don't need anything because Jesus, the Lord, or because my Lord and my shepherd provides everything. I don't have to be in control because I have a shepherd who has everything. And so long as I am his, I will not have needs. Amen? Jesus spends his ministry regularly calling people to empty themselves, to leave their places where they are in control or to abandon their sources of security. He asks us to move out of places we don't want to move. But it's hard to get to the places he's called us to if we're unwilling to move. I think it's interesting that his invitation is to come follow him, not to stay and become better people. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus is reading from Isaiah and opens the scroll and says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring, read it with me, good news to the? And then later in verse 21, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Matthew chapter 19, if you were to keep flipping, verse 16, it says this, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And then he said to them, why are you asking me about what is good? I like when Jesus throws it back. He says there's only one who is good, almost implying this, you must be coming to me because I seem to be like the one who is good, right? But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. It's a good answer. But then that's not good enough for the guy. He comes back and he said to him, which ones? Get out, we're always trying to figure out, all right, where's the line? How little do I have to do? Do you read it in there? And then Jesus lobs him a slow ball, right? Just kind of like one of these, like, here you go, buddy. You seem to be having a rough day, right? So let's try this one. Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You will not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbors yourself. And the young man said to him, I've kept all of these, but what's still missing? I did it. I, I haven't killed anybody, right? Amen? <laughs> I've not stolen a lot of things. I feel like my situation, the thing that's missing in me isn't the lack of following these. What's still missing? So what does Jesus say to him in verse 21? Jesus said to him, if you want to complete or perfect or mature, go and sell all your possessions and give to the? Uh-oh. And you know this because you feel it. So you want me to sell what I've worked for to give to people who haven't done anything for it. That may not be your initial response, but I'll bet when you're writing that check, you're trying to figure out, 
This person didn't put in the hours I put in. They didn't do the schooling or training I did. They don't have the credibility that I've got. Here's what I did to get what I've got, and now you want me just to sell all of it and give it all away. The issue is control and possessions. The more we have, the more we take ownership, the more control we take, and the more hardened our hearts become towards the kingdom of life. Jesus says, if you want to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, right? It's not an issue of that you won't have anything. He says, no, you'll have the good stuff. And then he says, come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving because he was one who owned much property. The issue was not of what he owned, but how much of that stuff owned him. Get it? Look at your top worries. Is what we lack, it's what we lack that we feel is holding us back, right? But Jesus shows us that too often it's what we actually have that holds us back. It's the fact that we've got too much. The problem is, and it's not just that we have it, it's that it has us. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, I, this guy walks out, and can you imagine being the disciples who have just left everything to come follow him? Watch this guy, they know what he's losing because he can't let go. And Jesus turns this into a teaching moment, says truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard pretty crafty, uh, you know, well, the, uh, the eye of a needle was actually the name of a gate in Jerusalem that they would put the camels in. The reality is, there's no actual proof for that. So it's a cute story, uh, but there's no evidence that shows that that's actually true. So what's Jesus saying? Think about trying to fit a full-grown camel through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is for someone whose stuff owns them to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because your riches aren't there, your riches are here. And there's something about longing to be with him that pulls us away from this and carries us to him. There's something that pulls us away from him when all we want is this and more of this. You with me? When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished or struck with panic and said, then who can be saved? Here's the deal. I love that there's all these moments where Jesus calls them to things. The minute they feel like their salvation is in jeopardy is when they've got to get rid of their stuff. Does that preach to you? Because we don't want to let go of it. Why? Because we've earned it, we own it, it's ours, we get to decide. And that stuff has ownership over us. And looking at, I love that that was added into the scripture. Jesus looked at him. I'm sure he's got his head cocked like a mom who just, did you, what are we missing here? You know, did you not hear me? But I love that Jesus looked at them and said to them, with people, this is impossible. But read it. With God. Now, you'll take that verse and use it for a lot of things that isn't this. Right? 
This verse could mean all kinds, right? Because you're, you're out there living your blessed life. Why? Well, because with God, things, all things are possible. And you'll hear it before the Super Bowl this next Sunday, right? Are you going to win? Yeah, because probably with, all things, you know, with God, all things are possible, right? But you grabbing the context? How can we dump everything we've worked for and everything we have that gives us any sense of security this side of the kingdom? Jesus says, on your own, you can't. But it is possible, but only with me. How can we enter the kingdom of heaven while owning many possessions? Not on our own. We need God. To Nicodemus, a Pharisee born in the right place to the right family with the right means to go to the right schooling, when asking Jesus how he was performing all of his signs, remember, he snuck in at the middle of the night because he didn't want anybody to know that he was kind of interested in Jesus. So he sneaks in and Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To this guy who was born in the right place, to the right family, with all the right things to set him in the right trajectory, Jesus says, you got to start over. And he goes into all the natural stuff. Well, how physically, I won't go there because we got kids in the room, but like how... Like anatomy, physiology-wise, like how does this pan out? You know what I'm saying? So he asks, like, how, how does all this work? And Jesus reminds him. G Nicodemus was blown away, and Jesus says, you have to lose everything that's made you who you are and be reborn in the Spirit so that your new life is only in Christ. Paul gives his testimony in a similar way, and that's where we're going to couch the rest of our time in Philippians chapter 3. Similar to Nicodemus, he was from the best families, he held the best positions. A few decades after Jesus' ascension, there are Jewish people convincing the new believers that they have to undergo physical circumcision to enter into God's promise, because it's all they knew. So Paul jumps in with his own testimony. And for those of you uh, who have this, I grew up in the church, I grew up with a good family, uh, my parents actually did it right, I feel like I've been blessed, I don't have the crazy testimony story. Read how Paul handles his story that's in the same way. He starts with this, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision or the mutilation, right? He's not slowing down on these guys. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. And he says, and if we did, I've got reason to boast as having confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he is confident in his flesh, I have more reason. And then he goes into his story about how he was pretty much good enough circumcised on the eighth day, as you were supposed to be, of the nation of Israel, God's people, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's a pretty good family line. The Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, he's a Pharisee. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. And as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. I was a good kid who grew into a good adult, who was a good person, and in fact, I would say God's person. As the new kids on the block would say, he's got the right stuff. But think about how Paul views all of that. I want to walk us through Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start with this one. Here's the first point. Is living poor in spirit means we've got to let go of everything we're holding on to. And probably that same level of 
anxiousness of, well, right? And then we start asking, like that guy asking about eternal life, like how much though? Like what, what do I get to keep? But Jesus' call is you've got to lay it all down. Don't be rich and hold on to your possessions, finances, attitude, status, pride. Paul had the right stuff, and he says this in chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss because of Christ. Do you hear it in Paul? I'm living in the blessedness. I'm living in the good life of those like I'm walking in that poor in spirit. I'm here. Can't take pride in what I have. I'm living the kingdom of heaven's good, flourishing, blessed life when I let go of all I'm holding on to and I'm poor in spirit. That's, this is the good life over here. Why? Because he's my shepherd and I don't have any wants. The second thing I want us to look at is this. Living poor in spirit means we've got to take hold of Jesus. And if you've been around church long enough, this feels like the like preliminary, like elementary foundational stuff. The reality is it is. And so many of us don't have it. And I did use us. I'm with you. Now that you've let go of what propped you up, we got to talk about how do we not take hold of the right stuff, and if we don't, we'll drift back. Paul says in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That stuff can go because of what I've received. I consider everything a loss because I can see the overwhelming value of knowing Jesus as my Lord because if he's my Lord and I'm in his kingdom, I don't have any wants. Amen? He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ, not gain anything from him, not gain knowledge about him, but to gain him. I want more of him. I want to be with him more. I want to become more like him. I want my life to exude the kinds of things that come from someone who's doing what he does. And it says, and that I may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not about what I can do to make me righteous. Some of us have tried and all of us have failed. But in placing my trusting allegiance in Christ, I receive a righteousness that comes from God. No one else can give it to me. He's the only one and he's the only one I can get it from. It says that I may know Christ that I would know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death if somehow I could attain the resurrection from the dead. I'll give up everything and I don't even mind doing some suffering because Jesus did it and I want to know him so deeply I don't want to miss that part of him either. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 verse 44 gives us a glimpse into what this kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his, say it with me, joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. 
that when you get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, there is nothing you've got that's worth holding on to. In fact, it's worth abandoning everything for so you can go obtain that. You get the image? Paul used this language, that I would surrender my own life, that I would die with Christ so that I could be risen with him. I would get rid of all of it because I've seen the kingdom. I've got a glimpse of it, and I want more of it. I will get rid of all of this so I could somehow take a hold of that. Are you seeing how good King Jesus is and how good the kingdom of God is? Because when you find it, it won't be an issue of what don't I have to sell. You'll be willing to get rid of all of it becoming poor in spirit just to take a hold of it. The third and last thing is this. Living poor in spirit means we, living poor in spirit, but we're rich in Christ. That it's not about what you don't have, it's who you do have and who has you. Philippians chapter three, verse 12. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Go ahead and say, I'm not there yet but I press on to make it my own, say that's where I'm going. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, say because Jesus redeemed me. Brothers, I do not consider what I have made it, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I hope this is our prayer, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, of God in Christ Jesus. What is your prize? The prize is that God's calling us to himself and we actually get to get there. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, Paul says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became so that through his poverty we might become. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. That he took on the very nature of a servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then when all was given up, God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every name in heaven on earth and under the earth would all bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I want to encourage you to do is look at what you wrote down before. Look at your top five list. And if you're like me, you probably moved that to a top 25 list because you realize I worry too much about things I'm not in control of, things that I feel like I can't secure tight enough, things I feel like people can take away from me. Jesus gives us something no one can take from you. The question for us is, is it enough for you? Because if it's not enough for you, you're not gonna go get rid of everything so you can take hold of him. If Jesus isn't enough for you, uh, you won't abandon Anything that's holding you or making you feel comfortable or secure to cling on to Christ, that he will not be your fortress because you're still trying to build your own. When we hear Jesus, he's reminding us that so long as he's our shepherd, we got nothing that we need to want for. The problem is when we want is when we stop allowing Christ to be our shepherd. We take the job back. And let me tell you, we're not good at it. 
We're not good at protecting ourselves. We're not good at securing ourselves. There was a moment in my life early in our marriage when I realized, I won't say I realized, that's a dumb way to put it, when Jesus reminded me, and if you've ever had these come to Jesus moments, they're not pretty all the time, that I had to give up being the chief provider of the Kaufman house because I wasn't very good at it, that I had to give up being the chief protector of the Kaufman house. I couldn't do it. There was things that were out of my control that I couldn't handle. So instead of trying to, uh, to arm up for battle, what I had to do was count all things loss and surrender it to Jesus that he would be the shepherd because shepherds protect and they provide. Shepherds lead and they guide. Shepherds make you lay down because they know when you need rest and they move you forward because they know what's best for you. You following? Look at the worries you wrote down before. You don't have to be enough. And you don't have to have enough. You need to surrender it all. Empty yourself. Become poor in spirit. That's the good life. For the poor in spirit, they belong to the kingdom of God. The challenging part for us is this. We like to hold on to too many things to live in the kind of kingdom that's constantly calling us and inviting us to let go. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Remind you, this is Peter that was called by Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that was on the mountaintop with Jesus at the transfiguration, that was the one that denied Jesus five times after he sliced a dude's ear off in the garden. Sorry, three times. Bad counting. But he's the same one that Jesus came to later and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? So when Peter makes this statement, it's because he's witnessed it firsthand from Christ himself. He says, cast all your anxiety or your worries on him because he cares for you. You can be poor in spirit. You don't have to carry all of that. In fact, you can be poor in worry too. You don't have to hold on to any of it because you've got a God. You have a Father who loves you and cares for you. You can't trust God with what you aren't casting on him because you're clinching it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Church, ask yourself, what good is it going to do to you if you gain everything but forfeit your soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for your soul? Uh, we're getting ready to take communion. If you don't have it, go to the doors or raise your hand. Someone will bring it to you. But I want you to hear this again. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, this moment where Jesus gives us a glimpse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's interesting is that he covers it up. Why? Because he doesn't want to risk the possibility that he could have it. To make sure that he can take it. But what he knows is, I can't have that and all of this. I've got to get rid of all this if I want to take hold of that. So to make sure that he can have that, he knows he's got to go back and empty all of this. You with me? Then he takes all that and he buys the field. He does whatever it takes. He gives everything he's got to do whatever he's called to so that he can fully take hold of the kingdom. 
Jesus surrendered everything. Sorry. It's an incredible treasure, worthy of being impoverished in spirit, because only when you've let go of everything can you take hold of Jesus, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, would you stand? And we're going to take communion. Matthew, you give me my communion cup down there. Thanks, buddy. And as we hold the bread and cup, we've got people walking around, so if you just raise your hand, someone will bring uh, you the elements. I want to reread that verse from Paul that we read before because I think often uh, we, we, we don't have the language couched in the big picture of what Jesus has called us to and what Paul's responding to. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, way richer than you'll ever get on this side of the kingdom, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for our sake, someone say for my sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Jesus surrendered everything, even his life, so that our death could be put to death. And through his death, we could have real life. When we take this bread, what we remember is Jesus' body broken for us. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. You see him pouring himself as he becomes poor. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Scripture says Jesus lifted the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we drink this, we remember, like Paul, some of us have a lot of reason to feel like we're okay. But my prayer is as we drink this, we remember what makes us think we're okay isn't enough. But what is, is this cup of the new covenant. That when Jesus' blood poured out, covered all of it, covered sins, forgave them, wiped it clean. And as we drink this, we drink a new covenant. We remember that we aren't enough. Jesus is enough. And there was something about us that he loved and came and died for. And if that doesn't make you feel treasured in this kingdom, I don't know what will. So we drink this to remember Jesus' blood poured out. Lord Jesus, would you meet us in this place? Father, would we be reminded how much we have because of everything you've given? Father, would you, in becoming like you, help us to give everything we've got to become more like you? Father, would you find us to be poor in spirit? Lord, as we sing this next song, would you help us empty ourselves so we can fully take hold of you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, as we sing this next song, we are going to be singing or proclaiming this good news of Jesus, who is our living hope. And can I leave you with Paul's words, if I could just read them over you? Paul says, but the Lord met me in this way and said this, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. I'm content with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. Let it all happen. I'm fine. Because it's when I'm weak is when I'm made strong.